I've never been a, a really big fan of knock-knock jokes, but I do have a favorite knock-knock joke. And so you're ready to do it with me? Okay, knock-knock. Control freak. Now, this is where you say control freak who? <laughs> the second wave, I love that. Ah, <laughs> uh, control. We're all pretty familiar with it, aren't we? <laughs> pretty familiar with it. Uh, isn't it remarkable that we're often most able to identify it in others more easily than in ourselves, though? She's such a controlling person. <laughs> We're especially able to identify it when it seems to be sort of an overt seizing of control. But sometimes it's harder to identify when it comes in a more subtle forms of sort of a silent control through ignoring or avoiding or those pesky little passive-aggressive maneuvers that can be done. Sometimes control comes disguised as niceness. We're fooled by what seems like a a helpful or a nice response when we really realize in between it and underneath it is a rather manipulative uh, effort to seek self and to seek control. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? We all do it, some degree or another. Something to do with our need to sort of feel safe in the world, you think? You think that's what it is? You know, ultimately, or at least bottom line, we're all just trying to survive. Trying to feel okay about where we are in our space in this crazy world. And control is a way where we can sort of kind of define a little bit of it and feel safe. It's ultimately about ourselves. It's ultimately about controlling our own little world. And it really is a manifestation of our sinfulness. It's a manifestation of our our lostness as we're seeing in this story of the prodigal son or the prodigal God as we're looking at it. Lostness and control seem to go hand in hand, particularly in this story. Both sons are guilty in their own different ways of of trying to take some kind of control to be safe in their place in the world, safe in their relationship and what they can get out of the father. Let's step back a little bit. Often when people uh, read the story that is best known as the parable of the prodigal son, they focus on the character of the younger son, his repentance and the, the father's forgiveness. I mean, that is the wonderful part of the story. This, this kid really messed up badly but came home repentant and the father lavished love and extravagant grace upon him. But we're realizing that when we look at the text, it's pretty clear that the story does not end with the return of the prodigal. In fact, almost half of the story moves on from there to talk about the older brother. The story is about both sons. Both are really alienated from the father. Both in their own different ways are trying to control some things and in a sense what they're doing by that control is disrespecting the father. And what Jesus is doing in his telling of this story then is he's comparing and contrasting these two sons and he's showing that both of them are lost. It's pretty clear from the wild behavior of the younger son how lost he is and the kind of things he does. But Jesus points especially to the older son because he's lost and doesn't know it. He's trying to take control of his life in order to save himself by being good. He needs repentance, grace, and forgiveness just as much as the younger brother. So as we're looking at this story, we're seeing that it's a story of extravagant grace, that the prodigal God is giving us a new way of understanding the extravagant grace of God found in this very familiar parable in Luke 15. And today as we look to the elder brother, we also come to a new understanding of lostness, brought about by efforts to control our own lives and ultimately our efforts to control God.
And praise God that Jesus rescues us from that too. So we're going to look at now for the next few minutes, okay, several minutes, okay, a lot of minutes, (laughs) is a new understanding of lostness, first of all. Secondly, what are the signs of that lostness that we come to recognize in the older brother and when we hold up a mirror in ourselves? And then thirdly, uh, just uh, how do we find some hope and grace and salvation in the midst of this? A new understanding of lostness. The older brother says in verse 28 of Luke 15, the older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. The story, in a sense, has a surprise ending, at least to those who are listening. Remember who his listeners are. They're the, 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 the Pharisees, mainly, and the teachers of the law. So it's just a surprise ending for them, asking the question, who's lost now? The older brother could see that this was one of the happiest days in his father's life. This is one of the biggest days in his father's life, the day that that loser brother came home. And he sees his father excited about that. He could see how ecstatic his dad was. He could see how wonderful this party was, but he refused to go into the biggest, most festive feast his dad had ever put on. Keller calls it a deliberate and remarkable act of disrespect. Saying, in a sense, I won't be part of this family and I will not respect your headship of it in this decision you've made to celebrate the homecoming of this loser. Another part of the surprise of the story that the father goes out of the feast. He leaves this great feast either. He goes out, he leaves his big party and he goes to plead with the older brother. He does not go out to scold him. He doesn't go out to shame him. He doesn't go out to browbeat him. He goes out to plead with him in love. Experience the joy I have that this one who is lost is now found. He goes out to the older brother just as he had run out to bring the alienated son into the family and around the table. Now he has to do the same for the older brother. He has to go out to bring him to the table. In a sense, what Jesus is saying to his audience, which is mostly Pharisees and teachers of the law, the older son is lost too. The Pharisees listening to the story were getting this surprise ending and they realized that it was aimed right at them. It was a complete reversal of everything that they knew and believed. The father is obviously God in this story. The meal is obviously the feast of salvation. The younger son is the sinner, the immoral lawbreaker. But he comes in and is saved. But the older brother goes out. The one who's kept all the rules, the older brother goes out and is lost. It doesn't make sense in their world. And what is it that's keeping the older brother out? His goodness. To which we say, oh my goodness. His goodness is keeping him out? He says, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed. Tim Keller says, the good son is not lost in spite of his goodness, but because of his good behavior. So it is not his sin keeping him out, but his righteousness. And believing that that will save him, his efforts at righteousness. Let's look at this matter in terms of then back to control, lostness and control. Is it okay to go to that part? Because we're going anyway, because that's what I say right now. (laughs) Preaching's so fun. Anyway, um, (laughs) knock, knock. (laughs) 
First, the younger brother. The first, the younger brother wanted control of his own life. He wanted the resources of the father. He wanted the freedom that they could purchase. He wanted that lifestyle that he longed for. And so he did it. He took the money. He took control. He left home. He broke all of the moral laws. But by the end of the story, we see that the older brother also wanted selfish control of the father's wealth. He was unhappy with the father's wastefulness. His opinion about this feast, the big table spread, the robe, the ring, the fattened calf. His opinion was that this was wasteful, disrespecting the father's choice. But while the younger brother got controlled by taking his stuff and running away, we see that the older brother got controlled by staying home and being very good. It made him believe that he had a right then to all to tell the father what he should and shouldn't do with his possessions. I've stayed here slaving for you, joylessly, believing that this gave me some sense of control over the decisions that you make. And I think you've made a very poor choice. He had this right because he had obeyed perfectly. He had control. He could do this. He'd been a member of the church for 40 years. Oops, I'm getting ahead of myself. Ultimately, the story is about controlling God. Who is my Savior? Is it possible that a focus only on being righteous and only being good is actually an attempt to control God? If we think we earn something or we are owed something, then yes. If we focus only on doing all of the right things in order to keep ourselves in that safe place, that salvation place, then we, in a sense, are exerting some control over God. Tim Keller, author of The Prodigal God, says this, if I can be so good that God has has to answer my prayer and owes me a good life and take me to heaven, then in all I do, I may be looking at Jesus to be my helper and rewarder, but he is not my savior. I am then my own savior by my own efforts. See, Jesus, part of the point here is he's bringing a gospel that is not simply a religious moralism. It is not simply a religious moralism. Keep these rules and you're good. Nor is it a fuzzy anything goes gospel either, for those that need to hear that part. But his point is it is not simply religious moralism. It's much bigger than that. It's more loving than that. It's broader than that in the love and the plan of God. The religious moralist obeys God to get control over God, to get the things, the rewards, the happiness of God, that safe place that we're always looking for. But the true follower of Christ, the one who trusts in Christ, who releases, in a sense, control of life to Christ, obeys just to get God. The follower of Christ obeys in order to please God and draw closer to him in trust and in dependence. Trusting him, receiving from him, not controlling him. I heard someone say once, there's only two things that I can be really sure of. One, there is a God. And number two is, I'm not him. And trusting him for salvation and for grace and giving control to him. We get back to the older brother, we see woven in here some signs of lostness then. Verses 29 and 30. 
Listen now to the reaction of the older brother. He answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. It's at this point in the video in the book if you're following along there that Keller points out that there are clearly older brothers in the church. Those who go to church may even pray and read the Bible, but out of an expectation then that that God owes them. I've I've logged this many days in church. I've I've read read this many pages. I've I've showed up for all the events. Doesn't that kind of get me something? Does God owe me something? And that's not an understanding, not much of an understanding of the biblical gospel. But Keller also notes as I do, that there are many of us, if you will, I'll include myself, you're welcome to join me if you can, or if you want to. There are many of us who who know and can even explain the true gospel of grace, saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves that anyone can boast. We get it, we've experienced, we understand it, but we still slip back to acting somewhat older brother-ish. We act older brotherish. We know the gospel of salvation by grace in our heads. We know it from our own experience where we've been set free from the guilt and the shame of sin, but our hearts seem to be drawn back to the older brother default mode of self-salvation. We're saved by grace, but then we feel we need to continue to live as if it's all up to me and my effort to please God. And then it ought to get me something. And if it's allowed to grow at all and fester, that older brother-ish attitude can begin to look like the older brother in the parable. We have a few characteristics of his older brother attitude here. First of all, a deep anger. Verse 28 says that he became very angry. Because of keeping the rules, he thinks, Or we think, my life ought to be going pretty well. I've been really good. I've shown up. I've I've done it. I've jumped through the hoops. I got my family there. I got my kids through Sunday school and confirmation. My life ought to be going better than it is. And when it doesn't, we can either rest back in the grace of God and trust it for the big picture, or we can get grumpy and angry and embittered. The older brother harbored a deep anger because he thought it should get him something more of an ease in life. Another sign of lostness is his joyless and mechanical obedience. Verse 20, he says, I've been slaving for you all these years. (laughs) Not I've been lovingly serving you, Dad, I love and respect. I've been slaving for you all these years. Older brothers obey God as a means to an end, as a way to get what they want. And sometimes obedience to God is really hard. But older brothers find even the hard obedience or especially the hard obedience, joyless, and sometimes going through the necessary emotions to get what they want. Here's one that begins to press in a little closer, to, at least to me, I know, and a few I've talked to, a coldness to younger brother types. This one has hurt the church down through the ages, maybe more than anything else. This is one that has driven out younger brothers right and left from the church. And this one, I think, even comes in sort of a a spiraling increase right now as we see 
droves of younger brothers and younger people leaving the church. A coldness to younger brother types. Verse 30, he refers to his brother as this son of yours. I am cutting myself off from that loser. This son of yours. He won't even own his own brother. He is disdainful of others who are unlike themselves. Older brothers are disdainful of those who are unlike themselves. Older brothers who pride themselves on doctrinal and moral purity. And what happens is we, when we pride ourselves on what we know in the scriptures and what we know about God and what we know about what's right and wrong in our church culture, and when we, think that, when we focus only on that, what does it lead to? It leads to a sense of, well, I'm just kind of better than these people. And it leads to a sense of superiority, and it can creep up on us in living our Christian life. A sense of superiority. I am better than these younger brothers who don't obey the rules. And in some cases, this coldness toward younger brothers is only a few degrees away from racism and classism. And we need to beware. Coldness to younger brothers. An even more painful one, I think, is a sign of lostness, is a lack of assurance of the Father's love. A lack of assurance of the father's love. In verse 29, the older brother says, you never threw me a party. When we try to earn our salvation, when we try to keep our salvation by controlling God through our efforts at goodness, we can never be sure when it's good enough, right? If I'm trying to earn something by being really good, when is enough? It's like a pass-fail class. Why would I have to do A work when I only need to do C work to pass? But what is C work? And how can I be sure it's not slipping down to D work? You who have taken passful classes know exactly what I'm talking about. How good is good enough? Or on the other end of things, 4.0, that's like a nothing these days, isn't it? They've added classes and things where you can get that way up above anything. The numbers keep changing. What's good enough? Or in another world, have you ever noticed how group one on airplanes now is really group six? You know, the handicap for then first class and then the platinum and then the gold and then the silver and then the turquoise and then group one. What's good enough? How do I get those? How do I get those tickets? Pay for them, I guess. But I'm losing track. Megan and I talked about that when we were in Tucson when I was out there running and hiking. How do I know that I've done enough that God loves me? When things go wrong, then we wonder if God is after us rather than running to him for safety and security. When things go wrong, we wonder if God is is getting to us and, and, and why is this being allowed to happen? What did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Or when we drag around guilt for never being good enough. Did I repent deeply enough? They told me to pray, but did I pray? Oh, I prayed. Did you pray hard enough? What's hard enough? Did I beat myself up enough when I messed up that time? And what happens when we're living with this, these kinds of questions is it keeps us at a, distance, at a distance from God's love. Intimacy with God, intimacy and prayer becomes harder to come by. Oh, we might still pray, but it becomes more of a listing and a rote thinking 
not a safety where it really belongs in the presence of our Savior and our God. The lack of assurance of God's love, and even when it comes from others, we're devastated by the comments of others. We hate to hear criticisms of others because we're looking for approval from people rather than resting confidently in who God has made us to be and where he has placed us, where those things can do a little more of this when we know who we are safe in the love of God. A lack of assurance of the Father's love. Another sign of lostness is an unforgiving and judgmental spirit. The older brother does not want the father to forgive the younger brother. I would never do anything bad. And so he looks down then with an unforgiving spirit. Truly a sign of older brother-ishness. So what can be done about all of this? Well, it takes a fresh look at the gospel, a fresh look at the gospel and at salvation in Jesus where we find hope and grace and salvation. Jesus ends the parable with the lostness of the older brother in order to get his point across that that is the more dangerous spiritual condition. The younger brother knew he'd messed up. He knew he had alienated himself for the father. And when he came to his senses, as the scripture reads, and came back, his, re- his repentance was genuine. It wasn't just a way, like, a, like when kids learn to say, I'm sorry, as the magic words. It was genuine. He knew he was alienated with the Father. He knew when he came back and repented and had a place at the table that he was living in the grace, the costly grace of his Father. So he knew he was lost, but the older brother did not know he was lost. Dangerous place to be. Here's where we need to understand, first of all, the uniqueness of the gospel. You see, moralistic religion, any religion that's based on on works and, and doing the right things, works on the principle that I obey, therefore God accepts me. I obey, therefore God accepts me. But the story of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, works on the principle I am accepted by God through Jesus Christ Therefore, I obey in this wonderful relationship that he's invited me into. These are really, really different perspectives and dynamics. And they live side by side in the church. Sometimes they live side by side in our own heads and hearts. Because they produce different results. They produce different kinds of character. The moralistic religion where I I obey, therefore God accepts me when we're never quite certain and there's that joyless mechanical observation of of rules and there's that lack of love um, results in a character that's more characterized by anger or grumpiness. A joyless compliance. I can remember President uh, Gary Walter, who's President of Covenant, saying when he first came into office of, we don't want to be cranky, angry evangelicals. We're cranky and we're angry when we're older brothers who think that others should get it the way we got it. So the characteristics are grumpiness, joyless compliance, a superiority, an insecurity, and a condemning spirit. That's what results there. But when living fully into the gospel where we realize we don't deserve any of this, and by God's grace he's come in and forgiven us and loved us and given us a place at the table, then we willingly follow and find joy in him. That rather slowly, but inevitably will produce in those people in that kind of church contentment, 
and joy and humility, a forgiving spirit and a generous spirit as well when a genuine gospel of Jesus Christ works its way into our hearts and our lives. The pull to the first one is strong. Even after we've come to Christ and experienced the second, it pulls us that way. The Father's extravagant grace is what we rest in. It's what we live in. It's what we are set free in. It's what motivates mission. It's what motivates service and obedience to the other. We don't serve and do mission so that we feel better about ourselves. We do it because Jesus has called us to do that and to be his presence in the world where people need to know this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of the real gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to fight against this control and moralistic religiosity, we need to know not only the uniqueness of the gospel, but we'll have to look to the vulnerability, the vulnerability of Jesus himself. Now remember who Jesus is talking to in verses 1 and 2. Basically, these are his mortal enemies, and we mean mortal, as in he could lose his mortality. The people he knows are out to get him and kill him. That was one of the themes we saw weaving through the Gospel of John in our study last year. They're constantly out to get him. And it's no different in this story in Luke 15. So this is a pretty pretty bold and risky challenge he presents to them. He's talking to those who want to kill him, and he's telling them that they are lost. He's telling them they pretty much totally misunderstand God's salvation. They pretty much have misjudged God's purposes in the world. He's telling them that they have disrespected their Heavenly Father, and they've tromped on the heart of God. But at the same time, Jesus is also loving them. In the story, when the father goes out to the older brother to plead with him, that is Jesus loving and pleading with his enemies. That is Jesus urging them to see the error of their thinking. Jesus does not scream at his enemies. He does not beat them up. But rather, he lovingly urges them to repent and come into his love. Even though he confronts these enemies, there's a tenderness really to his approach here and even to the father especially to the father in the story and so in this there is somewhat of a foreshadowing really of that moment on the cross when Jesus says father forgive them for they do not know what they're doing father forgive them they don't know what they're doing It was this love toward enemies that made him vulnerable and cost him his life. On the cross, instead of Jesus blasting his enemies, instead of calling down the wrath of God on them, he rather in deep, deep love takes the penalty of our sins upon himself. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.10, For if we, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, While we're enemies, we're reconciled. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We are saved. We are rescued. There's the rescue of Christ. There's the invitation of God. Our table has been before us all these weeks to represent the feast that God is inviting us to. And the two chairs representing the two brothers. And some of you might have seen this, and if you're particularly orderly, you might have wondered, why is the chair, why is the chair tucked in just like the other one? Well, I left it this way on purpose. This is the younger brother's chair. He got up from the father's table and he ran away. 
But when the conviction came to him and the call to repentance came to him, he came back and the father said, oh, you don't have to just be a hireling. You are back in the family. You are back at the table. And the son is invited to the feast. The father throws him the fattened calf, the robe, the ring, all the good stuff, that great party that the older brother was so mad about because he'd been at the table all along. His chair had not moved. He was there. He was in the family. But as soon as he saw this happening and his moral religiosity and his superiority rose up, he took himself himself away from the table and cut himself off from the love and the grace that the father had come to extend to him. And so the table is before us during this season of Lent, and it will be here on Easter Sunday as well to speak to us of the invitation of God, the invitation to this table where we are included, where we are loved, where we are forgiven, and then we joyfully get up with full bellies and say, I'm ready to serve you now, Lord, because I understand how you've accepted me purely by grace and love. But all the way through Palm Sunday, the purple will be on the table. Purple, which is the color of royalty because Jesus is our king, but purple also that it gets associated, particularly in Lent, with suffering because it was the color of the robe that he wore as he was beaten. And so it speaks to us of the mix of, of kingly royalty of this one who was one with God, part of that holy, holy, holy trinity and yet came to earth to be one of us and to suffer and to die for our sins. I can't wait to tell you that on Sunday it's not going to be purple. It's going to be white and gold. Because what do white and gold represent? But radiance and, and victory and purity forever with Christ at the table. So we finish with a few moments of quiet reflection now. I just want you to be thinking a little bit here. Perhaps I've raised a few things. Perhaps I've stepped on a few toes. Hopefully I did that without ruining the shine, as we say. But who do you relate to more this morning, the older brother or the younger brother? Who do you relate to more? Where is God perhaps convicting today? Take a look inside for a few moments here. What are really the control issues that we're dealing with in order to make sure we've got control of our little place in life? And once you've identified that, then you might even need to do it with your... I need to do it with my hands sometimes. <laughs> this is letting go. But it's also a place of receiving, isn't it? These hands like this. Of receiving the grace of Jesus. Let's do that as we prepare for our final moments of worship together. Let's pray. Lord God, as I stand before this table, I confess the days and the times of my life when I've been the younger brother who knew the right thing to do but just turned and did whatever I wanted to do so that I could feel good and feel better. Lord, I'm more deeply touched by the places where I've been the older brother after I've received of your grace, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, for turning my back on that gift of grace and then judging another brother or sister, thinking I'm better, questioning your love. I release these things to you, Lord God, and I release the places where I try to control things around me so that I can feel safe and feel better. Lord Jesus, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your love. 
Thank you that you get up from the feast and you went outside. You came to earth to invite us in. And you plead with us in love and you invite us to yourself. Holy Spirit, do your work among us as we receive not only the conviction but the invitation to repentance and to joy and to worship. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.